Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, everybody. Welcome to It Never Rains on this podcast. I'm Hithliday. I'm the managing editor for Addicted to Quack. It's a website. Joining me this week is one of the great ATQ writers, Badwater. How you doing? Um, I hate summer. Um, Uh-oh. It's, it's not just because of the lack of duck sports. I mean, my DNA is set up uh, for fjords, for caves, for peat bogs. I'm of northern European descent. And during summer, uh, I hate the evil light in the sky. So hmm. I, I, I basically put myself in interior caves with lots of air conditioning. And that's you how know, I survived summer. The University of Alaska Fairbanks uh, uh, made a prediction that we'd be able to see the Aurora Borealis as far south as Oregon uh, this week. So there's going to be uh, lights in the sky even at night. Yeah. Well, coming it's, from the solar it, wind, right? You know, it's so the, not the evil light in the sky, it is, it, it, as long as it's not 80 degrees. But it's the same night. star. The same star is producing particles that are, is going to get you no matter what. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's why I, I prefer caves. <laughs> uh, speaking of stars, uh, let's talk about some of the highly rated women's basketball transfers uh, who have come in and out of uh, the program for Kelly Graves. You know, there's been a bit of a fan narrative um, that I have detected uh, on Twitter, not exactly the greatest statistical redoubt uh, in the universe, um, that like players who transfer uh, out from Kelly Graves's program uh, play better at their new school, and players who transfer into Kelly Graves' program don't play as well as they did at their old school. And so, I, you know, I finally said, I, you know, I, I'm tired of this. Why don't you actually just run down the numbers, Badwater? Uh, and you did. You wrote two different articles uh, about this. Um, looking at uh, first the players uh, who left Oregon for other places and then uh, players who came into Oregon from other places. And uh, you gathered up all their stats uh, for th- for the folks who played enough minutes uh, at both places uh, to be worth you know talking about. It was actually <clears throat> quite a few of them. And so we had you know quite a bit of numbers to look at. Uh, uh, hell of a job. Uh, it, it was a pretty interesting reading. Yeah, and it would, in a way, it would kind of, um, you know, in general, go with that narrative. Um, you know, my own particular uh, angle on this whole narrative is that you know, here we picked up uh, five five star recruits, and really, regardless of their time at Oregon. And with one exception so far, I think, uh, uh, time at a new school, uh, the numbers just don't strike me as five-star numbers. I mean, sure, they're, they're good players, and there's been improvement in that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, some of the numbers, like when you're talking uh, average points per game, um rebounds per game, that's directly tied to the number of minutes per game. And across the board, these uh, these recruits, highly touted recruits that we brought on, uh, played more minutes at the new school um, without exception. So there's going to be some of that, uh, some of those numbers that increase. Um, so 
the thing to do is to look at uh, things like shooting and um, you know even with shooting we find that uh, even with more minutes there the uh, uh, shooting percentages do increase yeah but I don't know. I found it to be a really mixed bag. Like I, mm-hmm. I, I don't really think that there's any good statistical support for the pro Kelly Graves side or for the anti Kelly Graves side. Once you control for the fact that like everybody's supposed to get a little bit better every year, like, you know, so, you know, I, I went up the stat reference and I pulled down their, their entire CSV and, um, and just ran out you know, what's the average improvement for a women's basketball player year over year, you know, for their entire database. And it turns out to be, you know, the average, you know, level of field goal, uh, you know, floor shooting percentage bump year over year for players who have a comparable average number of minutes, you know, from year one to year two, year two to year three, year three to year four, uh, is about 4%, um, uh, a little less, about 3.89. Um, so it's like, yeah, a lot of players sort of, they, they transfer from Oregon to a new school and they get about four percentage points better. They're supposed to, you know, like that, that doesn't, you know, mean anything. Um, so like, you know, Maddie share, for example, who transfers from Oregon to Kentucky goes from a 34% shooter to a 38% shooter. Well, She's supposed to, you know, like who mm-hmm. cares, you know, honestly, you know, the, the fact that she only went to a 38% shoot, like she's a terrible shooter at Oregon, right? Like 34%, like anything below 50%. I'm just like, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Like, like that's the, like, that's terrible. The fact that like now if Kentucky made her like, if she went from a 34% shooter at Oregon to a 50% shooter at Kentucky, so she was actually useful, like, you know, th- then I'd be like, oh, shoot, you know, like uh, Kentucky found something in her that like that, 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 you know, proves that she was really a five star and Kelly Graves doesn't know how to coach. But the fact that she just got the standard four percent bump and that that was, you know, just elevated her to a third, you know, she went from a bad shooter to a bad shooter at the standard level of improvement like. I ain't like who cares, you know, and same, same for Angela Dugalic or how do you pronounce her last name? Do you know? Uh, Dugalic. Yeah. Did Dugalic went from, you know, 42% uh, shooter at Oregon to a 46% shooter at UCLA. Like uh, who cares? Like, I mean, that's better than 34 to 38, you know, 42 to 46, but it's still like, it's the standard level of improvement and it's still a subpar shooter. Like now her three point shooting gets a little better, but she only made four three pointers. So like, right. who cares? Like her and her free throw shooting collapsed. Her free throw shooting when, you know, she made nine free throws on, on 21 attempts. Like, like yeah, and you, you, look, you look at these numbers, both at Oregon and at the, the schools that they transferred to. And you know, wonder, um, uh, how are these players rated as five-star players? Yeah, man. Like, I really feel like the 2020, because remember, they're, all these players were, their evaluation years, their, like, high school evaluation years were all spiked by COVID. Like, I really think that, this is my personal theory. I, like, I'm never going to be able to prove this. But I really feel like the fact that everybody, like, the the scouting services that had to assign them five-star ratings and the high and the college coaches who had to like do their evals were doing it based on high school film that was all covid you know where they were like it, it was all through the filter of covid and like i think a lot of players got five star ratings that probably didn't deserve it um, right. and, and in my q a with uh with uh graham abel he mentioned about the challenges of Graham Abel, not the basketball coach, the, uh, right. Right. The soccer coach, the soccer coach. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, all the coaches were in the same boat, uh, not being able to evaluate players in person meeting, uh, over zoom. And you don't get the opportunity to really get a, a good physical evaluation. 
and um, that that's tough to surmount. You know, in in what I do for a living, uh, I make snap judgments about people about their behavior, their movement, that kind of thing, in a matter of seconds. That's what keeps me safe. I wouldn't be able to do that over video necessarily mm -hmm. uh, over zoom. Um, and you know, recorded stuff can be cherry picked. So you mean uh, coaches not being able to travel and, and observe yes. players in person you, you yeah. think is and, detrimental and, and talk to them in person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was a, that was a big, uh, a big challenge of the pandemic era. And we're only kind of really pulling out of that now. I think like Sydney Parrish is probably, and it, so the other two transfers out or uh, that are interesting are, uh, well, there's, well, there's three more. We, we talked about MediShare. We talked about Angela Dugalic. Uh, so, th you know, a, a couple others, uh, Sydney Parrish transferred from Oregon to Indiana. Um, mm -hmm. Her, uh, field goal percentage goes from 36% at Oregon, uh, which is real bad to, uh, 44.8% at Indiana, which is still bad. Like it's, you know, it's a, it's a big jump, right? It's, it's about 8.1% of a jump, which is like, you know, it, it's four percentage points better than the, what you're expected to do. So like Indiana definitely squeezed more out of her and like they gave her a bunch of playing time. She made a ton of three pointers, um, you know, nice. and, and her, you know, but she was making a ton of free th three pointers at Oregon, you know, her three point percentage doesn't change at all. Um, so like, there's no improvement on the three point level. There's a ton at the two point level, but like, but it's going from bad to below average. So it's like, what do you, you know, again, that's not going from bad to good. It's, you know, and, and then, and again, like T Taylor Bigby, you know, going from Oregon to USC, you know, where Oregon, she barely sees the floor, right? USC, she gets used a lot. Um, and like, you know, I don't know, it's a pretty good case, uh, you know, in that she's suddenly making a ton of uh, three pointers, right? You know, she becomes sort of a three point assassin, whereas she's barely shooting at all three pointers at Oregon and like she doesn't make a single one of them. Um, and like, but again, like her, she's shooting 38% from the floor. Like, I don't, I don't want a player on my team who shoots 38% from the floor. Like, that's not a worth that that's not a useful player. Um, the, the, the best argument for any of the players who transferred out or it, well, before we talk about Pinto, who's in your other articles <laughs> is really interesting. Um, yeah, is. is, is Kylie Watson who, who started out now she's a post player. So we don't have three points, three pointers to look at for her, but like, you know, Kylie Watson's really interesting. Her minutes go way up. And so her points go way up. Um, but her free throw shooting is, you know, is almost identical. Um, and her, like her field goal percentage, cause she's a post player, you know, she's just posting up like it does improve. It improves to 60%, which is like, that's great, but it improves from 54%. In other words, like she wasn't a bad player at Oregon. You know, she goes from good to better. And she go and it's like it, 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 now it, it improves by five point three percent, which is better than the standard baseline improvement. Like the best, that's the best case you've got for a player transferring out from Kelly Graves. You know, you know she goes, she Kylie Watson uh, going from Notre Dame. She plays more minutes in Notre Dame, and you know she shoots better for, uh, than the baseline. Um, uh, at Notre Dame than she did, you know, she, her level of improvement is better than the expected level by a little bit. It's 5.3 instead of 4%, um, improvement, but she was already, it's not like Oregon was wasting her. She was already a good shooter. It's not like she went from like 48% to 55%. Like that's like, that's what I kept looking for. I, I throughout in both of your articles, I kept looking for a player who was on one side of the 50% threshold 
world and crossed it to be on the other side when they transferred to or from Oregon. And spoiler alert, there are none, like none of them, like nobody crosses the threshold. Nobody goes from being a good player to a bad player. They're all just like they either are a good player who becomes better or they're a bad player who becomes like less bad of a player, but like, but that's it. And so I sort of like none of this moved the needle for me is sort of like, I'm glad that you did the, the project because like gathering all that data, it's always valuable to gather data and like, it's always valuable sort of, but uh, you know, it's valuable to prove the null hypothesis, but I think what you did was prove the null hypothesis, the null hypothesis here being sometimes players get better and sometimes players get worse. And the, the, it doesn't, the, the null hypothesis is that Kelly Graves neither makes players better nor worse. Right. Like the null hypothesis is that Kelly Graves is not, uh, poisoning players nor, uh, uh, magically transforming them. Uh, because of course that's the null hypothesis, right? Like that he doesn't have magic powers to make them amazing or make them terrible. Like, right. And in the case of uh, Kylie Watson specifically, you know, we're talking about uh, a sophomore that's um, playing now as a junior at Notre Dame. And um, I would, from, from a big, I would kind of expect that, that, uh, increase in experience would um, would show itself. Yeah, in, definitely. In stats. You know, it, it takes a, a while for the big, um, you know, we're not all Cameron Brink, for God's sake. But, you know, it, it takes some uh, experience for the bigs to um, really make themselves be shown and get, get past just get past the learning curve. They all go through a, a, this huge learning curve when you're a, a, a freshman and a sophomore. And so it's, it's expected that when you're a junior or a senior, yeah, that's that experience is going to be reflected in better stats. And it's, it's not a, it's not a huge percentage, but it's there. So like, so flipping over to your other article, first of all, I, I sort of like, you mentioned two players who uh, were basically injured during their time at Oregon, uh, Shannon Diffsey and Taylor Hosendove. And like the, their stats are interesting. Like Hosendove's uh, uh, field goal percentage actually is one of the ones that crosses the, the threshold. She goes from 46.6 at Georgia state to 56.7 at Oregon, which is amazing. Like it's a 10 percentage point jump and it crosses the threshold, but but she was playing so few minutes at Oregon, you know, like she, she was averaging 12.7 minutes per game that I sort of just think that that's a statistical fluke and it wasn't worth like, I, I just don't, I mean, if I were, if I wanted to be a, a real Kelly Graves Homer, I'd be jumping up and down and screaming about that. But like, I don't think that would be fair to do. I, I just don't, I think that the statistical, it's not valid to pull, to, to use those stats, frankly. Well, I think her her role is likely different at Georgia State than in yeah. Oregon, where she you know she was uh, primarily um, you know out there to defend guards that kind yeah. of stuff, and and maybe a smaller forward. And then Doozy, I, I don't remember seeing her at all. Like I, I just like, I mean your your article says she played eight point two minutes. I, I'm like I don't remember any of those minutes like at all. Um, yeah. So anyway, I, I sort of wasn't paying attention to them most at all. So like, I don't know, going in no particular order, like Tay Hansen, like big improvement. You know, she she improves, you know, between Arizona State and Oregon, her uh, field goal percentage goes up by seven point eight percentage points, which is like well over baseline. It's just it goes from thirty one percent to thirty nine percent, which is like I kind of don't want Tay Hansen on the floor. Like, that's not good enough, you know, like, just like I was saying, you know, about Maddie Cher and Sydney Parrish and Taylor Bigby, like, same about, like, congratulations, your number went up, but, like, like, you're still so low that I don't want you on the floor. Like, I kind of think that's true of Taya Hansen. Like, I understand yeah. that she has a role as a defensive player, 
and like her her three point shooting ain't bad either. Um, like I think she's a good team player, and, and she has some other stats that are, are that are worth recommending her. But like thirty eight percent is just too low. Uh, you know, she's hoisting up too many shots to be shooting at thirty eight point thirty eight percent. Like, right, and her three point shooting was really streaky. You know? Yeah, I mean it's fine and dandy to hit um, five out of six. Uh, three three pointers one game but then the next couple of games you're going oh four and um there wasn't any kind of consistency with that and then you a really interesting one shania pinto she she starts out at northwest florida state then she transfers to oregon where she's not really used that much uh, and then she transfers from Oregon again to Penn State, where she's used a lot. Like Penn State is like loves her. Uh, but here's the thing: her field goal percentage is stuck at forty five percent the whole time. And actually, her highest uh, of all of them is 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 actually Oregon at forty six point nine. Like Kelly Graves got the most out of her uh, in her eleven point four minutes per game. Um, but it's like she's not getting that four percent year over year bump. She's like stuck in neutral. Um, yeah. So it's like I don't know what Penn State sees in her. Like that's a like I totally understood why Oregon didn't play her. She's not over the fifty percent threshold. So like Penn Penn State, I don't know what you're doing. You shouldn't be playing her. Um, you know, again, like this idea that like you know somebody transfers out from Oregon and like they get better. Like no you know, not true. You know, they, 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 they got a player that they're playing who's like taking up floor time and not shooting above 50%. Um, well, Penn state's, um, just kind of a middling, uh, team and they, they're in the lower third of and she, the she, big 10 conference. So she's shooting they, they 20, not, she's shooting they, they 24%. She's shooting 24%. Uh, from the behind the arc on 37 attempts. What are you doing making 37 three point attempts at Penn state and only making nine of them? Like that's like, that's not, that wasn't a good transfer pickup. Like that's not a good use. 21 minutes a game. Like, yeah. Um, so then two of them that really hurt, um, for Oregon, um, Elise Hurst and India Rogers. I like Elise Hurst a lot. Like I just like watching her play. Her field goal percentage is stuck. Like I just sort of, you know, got on Shania Pinto about her field goal percentage being stuck. Elise Hurst is stuck and it's stuck at a worse number. It was 36% mm-hmm. at New Mexico. It was 38% two years ago at Oregon and it's 34%, you know, so not only did it not get better, it got worse by four percentage points, which means like net compared to like baseline, it's like eight percentage points worse than it should be, you know, like uh, that's terrible. Like what's she, you know, what's she doing attempting 339 attempts you know and and shooting that poorly like uh uh and and like and and and, and like she had the one game where she like made a bunch of three points three pointers and we all like fell in love with her her three-point game her three-point game is terrible last year she was you know i just made fun of Janaya pinto not made fun but like or made made fun of penn state uh for playing her that much uh Mm -hmm. oregon doesn't play elise hurst that much um and for a good reason, she shoots 29% from beyond the arc, uh, but lets her shoot 113 times. Like, that's not... Mm-hmm. And that collapsed from last year, like the, the year prior to the 21-22 season, where it was 38%. That was really good. It, it collapsed by nine percentage points from beyond the arc. Like, that's bad. That's really bad, Elise. Like, you know, that's or I don't know whoever's coaching her is doing a bad job. Like, I don't, I don't know who's to blame, but like, that's, you you know, but that's not a transfer thing. That's not a transfer to Oregon and get worse thing. That's a transfer to Oregon and didn't get better than New Mexico. And then got worse your second year at Oregon thing. Like this is like super mixed bag, you know, and then India Rogers, you know, who really, who's like transferred from USC to Oregon now is transferred out again. She gets better from USC to Oregon. She goes from 40% to 45%, right? So that's not only getting better, but it's getting better than baseline. It's a full point better than baseline, right? 
Uh, yeah, and and her uh, first season, her her prior season, I should say, at Oregon, um, was kind of in between uh, those metrics. So yeah, uh, that's why I say you know she's just steadily improving like you would from uh, that kind of player. I mean, she's a good player. Yeah, I mean, she she's an okay player, but like she shilled and break over fifty percent from the floor, and she was like. There was maybe two games that Ndia Rogers played at her time at Oregon in which she was not the most athletic player in most athletic human being in the building. Like there was no excuse for a, a person of that caliber uh, uh, in that uh, at, at the position that she plays in, in a basketball game should be shooting 45% in, in, in her, what that was her third year. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, so she improves, you know, at Oregon, uh, but she improves to a level that was not good enough to justify her floor time. I mean, that was really the problem that Oregon basketball had and why it wasn't a better team is that they had very few players who were shooting above 50%. And like, that's what you need to do to justify your floor time. And it's like, I don't think they had five players who could justify the floor time, which like you have to put five players on the floor. So... Yeah, well, they were they're kind of stuck because of injuries. You know, sometimes it was the well, you know, the it was the the lesser of the evils that you're presented with. I mean, yes, that's true. But like, even if everybody was fully healthy, I don't think they had five players who were fifty percent plus shooters. And it's not like they played in the league that had a bunch of really great defenses. They yeah. played in a league in which almost every game that they played, they were athletically superior to their opponents. And all they needed to do was make 50% of their shots and they'd win by 30 points. And they couldn't, they couldn't put five players on the floor who could do that. And like, I, I was on a podcast with Adam Holland uh, a little while ago, and he was sort of lamenting all these players transferring out. And I made a reference to an old line. It's an old apocryphal story about Michelangelo um, who's asked, uh, how did you carve the great masterpiece, David? And he responds, oh, it's easy. You just get a big block of marble and you carve away everything that's not David. And, you know, that's how I've, you know, this is coming from my football background where I do all these roster reviews and I'm like, clear out your bench warmers, clear out your unproductive players, go, you know, go get, you know, build your roster of players who are better and don't lament the players who aren't good enough to see the field for you, you know, build yourself a national championship team and everybody who's not good enough to be on a national championship team, like don't be sentimental about them needing to leave. You know, those, that is a matter of carving away parts of the marble block that aren't David. And so when I see, you know, players who are sub 50% shooters, I'm just like, that's, not David. And, and so it's like, okay, India Rogers got better. She didn't get good enough to be David. And like, and when I look at these other players who transferred out and got better, but not like Taylor Bigby, who improved to a 38% shooter and Sydney Parrish, who improved to a 44% shooter and Angela Dugalic, who improved to a 46% shooter and Maddie Sher, who improved to a 38% shooter. I'm like, none of y'all were David either. So like, yep transfer out you're not david yeah and um you know hopefully we we get what graves is uh seems to be after you know let's say a better more cohesive team on the floor um the and hopefully they they can stay uninjured you know the the Injuries really hurt us in the past couple of seasons when when Sabali was getting gimpy at um, the end of the 21-22 uh, season, Oregon uh, couldn't win. Yeah. They, uh, I mean, they struggled against Belmont, for God's sakes. Um, and then last year, there's a, a whole plethora of injuries, but uh, Oregon wasn't really able to win if Grace Van Sluten wasn't on the floor. And that really speaks to, you know, what you're 
Tahina Pow-Pows and India Rogers and and everybody else is doing or not doing. So, All right. Uh, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll keep talking about wins basketball, but we will talk about a team that uh, that's really not a cohesive basketball team. Uh, we will start in with your, uh, your preview series of some of the other Pac-12 basketball teams, starting with Arizona State. All right, Arizona State women's basketball uh, had the uh, mighty uh, Sun Devils uh, went eight and twenty last year. Uh, they they started out okay in non-conference, although they played a bunch of teams that like I'm recognizing them from football as FCS teams. Um, it's kind of remarkable how little they challenge themselves in the non-conference. Um, <laughs> like, I mean, this is amazing. Um, like it's nothing but FCS teams. I don't know if that's the same distinction in, in women's basketball, but I mean, yeah, holy cow. I mean, it's Northern Arizona, Grambling state, Montana state, New Mexico, which is actually no matter, no longer uh, FCS, but they went to overtime with them. Uh, American university, which I think is division two, uh, grand Canyon, uh, uh, Massachusetts, they lost to them. Uh, Stephen F. Austin, they lost to them. Uh, uh, Prairie View. Um, yeah, no, it was bad. Uh, meanwhile, they also lost to Notre Dame and, and Missouri. Uh, and then they started Pac-12 play um, in which they lost every game. Uh, no, wait, they they did beat the Beavs. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of House of Sparky's lone uh, women's basketball articles was about beating the Oregon state. <laughs> we won a game. We won a game. Yeah. So I, um, I, that is the extent of the homework that I know about, uh, uh, ASU wins basketball. What a great team for you to start your series of previewing women's basketball, uh, programs with bad water. I'm really looking forward to this article on Thursday. Uh, it should be a thriller. Um, <laughs> No, look, there's this, there's this Anna Karenina, uh, principle where it's like all, uh, all happy families are identical. All dysfunctional families are unique and interesting. Um, what unique and yeah. interesting ways is, uh, Arizona state's women's basketball team dysfunctional? Well, the, um, the Sun Devils, um, uh, under, understandably, uh, started off with uh, a marshmallow schedule last season because it was the first year of a, a coaching change to Natasha Deer. Now, uh, Natasha Deer took over uh, an ASU legend, who's uh, Charlie Turner Thorne. And Char- Char- Charlie Turner Thorne uh, was the head coach for 25 seasons. Wow. Uh, for. 22 consecutive seasons until she retired, the Sun Devils either reached the uh, NCAA tournament or the WNIT. Wow. And they're. So this is like quite a reversal. Yeah. Yeah. And their 8 and 20 uh, record was the worst since the mid 90s 93, 94, 95. Um, so there was a, there was an overhaul involved and they knew that, uh, that they had a a tough season ahead of them. Um, they were really gripped by the injury bug, even more so than we've seen at Oregon or some other teams. Yeah. I see that they Uh, forfeited a couple of games. Was that because of injuries? Yes, they didn't have any, enough scholarship uh, wow. players to put on the court, and and so, yeah, I mean we we can bemoan um, thirty eight or forty percent shooters, but at least you've got somebody on the <laughs> yeah, floor. At least they showed up and <laughs> made some baskets. Yeah. So yeah, it, we can uh, feel a little bit better. Um, in that we don't have to deal with the significant struggles of others. So when the coaching change happened, did a bunch of players transfer out? Like, um, no, there were, there was a, a lot of, uh, attrition, um, 
um, Ty Hansen transferred out. Uh, yeah, sure. And but I think um, at that point the players probably saw the writing on the wall and oh you mean the year or two before charlie left yeah. uh like sort of some players were already trickling out and so this was just yeah, uh, or, the other or shoe dropped yeah we're we're juniors or seniors and I so see. so they didn't have uh, adir didn't have the players to work with that um turner thorn had um, ASU was it, only it really recruiting. The, the other uh, thing that we see in football, I keep making football parallels. It's all I write about, but like yeah, when you have sort of a, when you have a long time coach who sort like kind of the, the, you know, towards the end of their career, sort of the spark goes out from recruiting a little bit and like, they don't, it's, it suddenly falls off at the end because like, oops, I forgot to recruit the last couple of years. And so when I hand it off to the new coach, the new coach is like, uh, this cupboard is bare. Do you think that is something that happened with this, uh, this team too? Possibly to an, an extent, but the, um, with the, the transfer portal being ever prevalent, um, Adir didn't have a lot of quality uh, players remaining from the previous season or seasons. Hmm. She did make really good use of the transfer portal. She brought in a, uh, um, a player called uh, Tyee Skinner, who was ASU's star last year and uh, was just an outstanding player. As that was, uh, I mean, one's you know, not enough, but she got one. Right. <laughs> yeah. She, she kept them from um, being even worse, if, if that could be conceivable. Well, how about for this upcoming year? Did, did more portal additions who look like they could build out? Well, right now, ASU has only eight players on the roster. They don't, have, they don't have a single freshman. So... Uh, they, that's bad. they don't, yes, it is bad. They don't have any recruits. And, uh, I imagine the coach is, uh, out there in the field trying to, um, scrape up some more transfer, um, portal additions just so that she can maybe field a squad, uh, next year with, uh, having to forfeit games. Uh, uh, ASU is in, in a, a uniquely bad situation. Um, why do you say uniquely bad? Well, I, 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 can't, uh, I can't think of any of the other Pac-12 teams that are uh, undergoing these kinds of, of you know, perfect storm situations where you have a, a coach change and, yeah. and you're not able to recruit and you have significant injuries and that kind of thing. It's just kind of a, a perfect storm that uh, really hampered them last yeah. season. You know, in, in football, you know, I, I study teams. A, a lot of times you can see teams sort of make quick or quick-ish turnarounds in that there's so many players who want to play football that, you know, when you clear out or if you clear out a bad roster, what you can offer to those guys is playing time, you know, like, hey, man, we need you. You know, that is like some of the, the best selling point that you've got, like, hey, you know, you ain't going to have to wait in line behind a bunch of better players, you know, to, to wait your turn, you know, to see the field. You're going to get to play, you know, right away. Um and, uh, you know, to some extent, I think that'd probably be true for Arizona State's, you know, wins basketball team, but like sort of the natural constraints, um, or I don't know how natural they are, but like the constraints that exist with the women's basketball talent pool as it, as it exists in the year 2023 in the reality that we live in, um, socially shaped as it is, uh, is just that like, there are fewer great players who want to play right away and they're kind of hoarded by, you know, a smaller number of schools and just sort of being able to hold out. Well, you'll be able to see the floor is like, is not 
so much of a selling point. Like, and so I sort of have a hard time seeing a, a program like turn it around just on like, Hey, come play for us. We need you. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and it doesn't help that, uh, the other team in the state, the Wildcats, uh, are playing well, are expected yeah. to play well again uh, this season. The Pac-12 are recruiting well. And so you have that to uh, deal with. It's like, um, you know, why can't Oregon State recruit mm -hmm. uh, five-star football players or, or top-quality men's basketball players? Well, it's partly who you are, but it's also partly who you've got right down the road. Yeah. All right. Let's take a break. Uh, we come back. We'll uh, talk a little bit of football. Okay. I have, uh, uh, I finished up my duck dive series on uh, previewing PAC 12 teams Um uh, and I have switched back to writing about uh, Oregon transfers. Um, I had I had done uh, the guys who came in prior to the spring game um, before I started in with my duck dive series, and now I am doing the four guys who came in after the spring game. Um, the uh, the the first one that I did is uh, Nishad Struther. Uh, he's an offensive lineman, uh, specifically a guard, uh, who comes from East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. Um, he was a three-year starter there. Um, the 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 he was a 2019 recruit. He redshirted in 2019. He started. He became a starter for the first time in 2020, but of course that season doesn't count. Um, he's also been a starter at left guard for 2021 and 2022. So that means for anybody doing the math at home, uh, he's got two to play two remaining, 2023 and 2024 remaining um, of eligibility. Um, uh, uh, he plays guard pretty well. Um, he's... Uh, 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 he's got the dimensions that you want. He came in. It was interesting. He came in as like a two star at like uh, like six three two eighty five, like super skinny. Like I, I found some of his twenty twenty film, but I didn't. Um, I didn't put any of his twenty twenty film in the article because. A, it was the COVID year. It's really weird. B, he was playing right guard, and I thought that would be kind of confusing. And C, he was still really skinny in 2020. Like, it was freaky. But then, like, I don't know, something between 2020 and 2021, he, like, found the training table, and uh, he is now at, like, 325 pounds. Like, he really got big um, uh, between his, like in school anyway, his second and third year. Um, so like, yeah, he's definitely up to his playing weight, you know, now, um, he really carries it well. He really moves well. I really like the way that he moves downfield. Um, you know, uh, really good for footwork. I really think he's like capped out in terms of his footwork. Um, uh, which is like sort of a nerdy thing to talk about. I know with offensive line, but like given what his weight now is and how well his footwork is, I really don't think he would have been evaluated as a two star. This has all been throat clearing about what his talent rating is on two, four, seven, because two, four, seven, very strangely for everybody else, they go back and who, who hits the transfer portal for everybody else. They go back and regrade guys and are like, well, you were a two star, but now that I know that you're a three year starter and your weight got up to this and blah, 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 I would issue you a transfer value of a 0.91 or whatever. Um, but they, they haven't for him. Like the, he's just still in their database as a two star, which is like, mm. So what, you know, what am I supposed to write, you know, about that? You know, like, I don't really think he is. So I checked out the other scouting services. The other scouting services have him as like a high three star. I, I don't, I think that's about fair. Like I, like I do, I, 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 having finished watching, I acquired almost all of his film from 2021 and 2022. Like I didn't get a couple of FCS games and I missed actually one game that I really wanted to get, which was the, they, they lost in blowout fashion to Houston, um, like 42 to three. And I was like, why did they only score three points against Houston? But I will never know. Cause I, that film doesn't exist. I, I really wanted to find that film, but it was one of the few that I wasn't able to watch sadly. Um, but anyway, other than that, uh, I watched like 19 of his games. Um, 
and, and like, he missed like uh, two games dude, with an injury. So like I watched almost all of them. Um, uh, yeah, I like him. Um, I, I don't quite like him as much as Junior Angelau, the other guard that transferred that they got. Um, he was from Texas. He was like a mid four star. I really like Angelau's film. Um, Struther is like a little less technically advanced. Like I think his footwork is just as good, but his offense was not nearly as complicated. ECU kind of ran a very, um, like it was a modern spread offense, but it was sort of, you know, I don't really think he's going to have any difficulty like adapting to Oregon's offense. It's not like it's going to be like, oh, I ran a triple option. What is this craziness? Like, no, he's not going to have any difficulty with that. But it's like their play caller was kind of a meathead, I, I think. Like he'd been doing it for like 39 years and it was just sort of a. I don't know. It just wasn't very sophisticated. Like there was very little motions in it. There was very, you know, it's just like I've been watching Oregon for a long time. And like, there's something about going from like Oregon's film or even like watching Steve Sarkeesian's at Texas, where it's like, I had a bunch of problems with Steve Sarkeesian's playbook, but at least it kept me interested. I was like kind of falling asleep watching ECU's playbook. It was pretty boring. Um, And like a lot of it would just sort of came down to like the quarterback being like, like moxie you know like the quarterback was just a you know like a real can do kind of quarterback and like the the run blocking was just sort of like wrestling and he was just like i'm just gonna wrestle with you who's like he's really good at it. i've got a couple of clips in my article where it's like it's really nerding out about offensive line technique but like he has to scoop out a nose tackle from a a, a guard spot which is really hard because like well just read my article there's a video of it but like he's got to go from the outside of this dude it's a nose so he's lined up over the center right so he's got to run across that dude's body get on the other side of him turn around and then push him back where he came from so he's got to make a 270 degree turn right like a fish hook and then push him back and it's a nose. So that's a big guy. That's like a 310 pound guy and clear him out of the way for the running back to run his heels. And he does it because he's like, he's really strong and he's really fast. Like he has all of these like, yes, physical tools. You've got them. I like it. Nishad like way to get like, yeah, totally got the physical tools. But then like some of the other stuff that I watched, like his hand placement, in pass blocking, I cut, I got a couple of really good, I mean, they're, they're, it's good film of his pass blocking reps where it's like, okay, really good footwork in the sense of like his, if you look at his cylinder, like his, if you imagine a human being as a cylinder where, where remember physics class where you had to picture where the center of gravity for an object is like a complex object is or it's like his center of gravity is pretty much exactly where his belly button is. And then so you take where his belly button is and then you imagine it where his, you know, uh, like a point, the, the line dropping right to where his feet are and his belly button is always right over his feet, even though that's moving. And it's like, yes, perfect. That's how you always maintain your power is making sure your center of gravity is always right between your feet like it's never leaning over your feet it's never over one foot but not the other foot it's never being pushed back or leaning forward like yes good footwork um and like and you're not getting fooled you're not getting your hands swiped or whatever but like the the you know what you really want to do is have your hands inside the chest plate you know on the chest plate of the guy that you're controlling because then he doesn't have power over you what you don't want to do is have your hands outside the guy's frame because what number one what happens when he pulls away and then you grab on that's a holding foul right um or you know uh, you just have less ability to control him if you're outside his frame you want to be inside his guard uh so like he like that's where some refinement needs to work you know his hand placement needs some refinement um he lunges a little bit in pass uh blocking like he sort of anticipates and reaches out for you instead of maintaining a flat back and letting him the the defender come to him so like that's illustrated in my article um and then the other thing is like in run blocking like there is some zone um like combo stuff where like oregon fans should be familiar with where you sort of like you chip the dude that's your so your teammate is blocking a dude and you sort of chip him you know you, you help out and but then you run up to the second level and you block a linebacker right uh he like he's got that memorized like okay my job is to chip that dude i gotta hit him i gotta hit him i gotta hit him i gotta hit him and it's like he's so mesmerized in like i've got to you know chip that guy that if he's like if if he's like 
tailing away from him. He's like, he's locked onto that and he sort of like gets off his angle. So then when he finally goes up and run the backer, it's like he's sort of off the, the that angle and the backer, he doesn't like hit the backer square. And it's like, Nishad, you need to sort of let that go. You, you know, go do your assignment. Your assignment is the priority. You know, so I, I put some clips in that where it's like he, his like chip and move up technique needs some refinement. Um, on the other hand is like, oh, this is really weird too. So like they never got blitzed. Like, I don't know what it was about the American Athletic Conference but like they didn't just play AAC teams. They played a bunch of power five teams. They played, um, they played BYU a couple times. They played South Carolina. They actually played against Jordan Birch, although those two never made contact like that. I was so eager to put a Struther versus Birch clip in my article, but it didn't happen. Sadly, um, they just literally, they never even touched once like human contact didn't happen. Uh, but anyway, uh, they played North Carolina. Um, they were scheduled to play Boston college, but then Boston college backed out of the bowl game. Uh, and then a bunch of the, they played Cincinnati twice, including the year when Cincinnati went to the, the, the playoffs. Um, they played uh, coastal Carolina, which is not a power five team, but it's like, it was a really good team. Uh, yeah. So like they, they played a bunch of good teams, just like the, they were all like, like, but they didn't want to blitz. It was really weird. In fact, it, one of the stats that was kind of crazy that I put in my article is that like, they actually got more, um, uh, three man rushes than five man rushes. Uh, which is like, that's a weird stat anyway. So like a lot of times he doesn't really have much to do. Uh, uh, so, but he like goes and looks for work, which I really like. He isn't just like standing around picking his nose. Like he goes like, well, I'll help my teammate. I'll help. I'll help there. Or like, oh, the quarterback is scrambling. I'll run downfield and hit a dude, which like, yeah, I like that. Uh, and, but then they also like, he picks up twists really well, like really well. He never once missed a stunt. Like he has, like, it was weird. I just said that he had like kind of tunnel vision about like, I got to get my chip in. I got to get my chip in. I got to get my chip in. But what he doesn't have ton of tunnel vision for is, um, it is when a twist is coming, like, like I got to block my dude. I got to block my dude, but his helmet is up. Like if you look at his helmet, like I, I, in, in the article, like it's repeatedly say like, look at his helmet, look at his helmet, look at his helmet, because you can tell from where his visor opening is, where his eyes are. Cause like they, they you don't look with your eyes, you look with your whole helmet. Uh, and uh, it's just the way that helmets work, I guess. Anyway, uh, <laughs> if you look, I, I don't know why that is, but it is. Anyway, if you look at his helmet, you can tell that he's blocking dude A, but he's looking at dude B the whole time. Like he's not looking at the dude that he's blocking during stunt pickup. And so he never got beat by a twist. Not what you know what I mean by a twist? Hmm. No. It's when, uh, okay, so like, the, the, so there's one dude who's lined up across from you and there's another dude who's lined up uh, across from like your buddy, the tackle, right? So let's say, you know, or it's the three tech and the five tech, three techs uh, aligned across from you and the five techs are aligned across from your, your, uh, your buddy, the tackle. Um, so normally just the three tech attacks you and the five tech attacks your buddy. That's just a normal pass rush, but a twist would be like the, 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 the three tech sort of first comes at you, but then he sort of switches off and goes towards the tackle and the, the, the five tech sort of comes around and comes at you. And the idea is that the three sort of draws you off. And now the five is looping around and you're distracted and you sort of like follow him. You get out of position and the, your buddy, the left tackle you're now in his way. You can't, ch he can't chase him through your body. And, and, and like that end is faster than he is. So he's going to get to the quarterback. Right. And, and there's other forms too. There's, there's ET twists and, and there's a bunch of other forms of them. Uh, and, and there's loops where they go more than one guy over and all. There's a bunch of different examples. Like I, I could get some coaches tape if, you need, but I'm not going to do that. Anyway, the, uh, you go find them on YouTube. Just look up coaches clinics on twists and stunts and, and loops. Anyway, the, uh, so like the, or you just read my article. I put a bunch of examples of them of twists and I called them twists and I point out here's a, you know, an end OLB twist and here's a tackle tackle twist and blah, blah, blah. So like, anyway, the point is 
you, you got to keep your eyes up because they're trying to fool you. They're trying to get you to, to be in overly engaged in the first guy who attacks you and, and get you to not come off of him in order to block the other guy who's coming around. But Struther never gets fooled zero times, zero times. I've never seen that before. Zero times. Did he get fooled? He always keeps his eye up and goes and hits the other guy who's coming around. The quarterback never had to deal, not from him anyway. That was the other problem that he knows about ECU is like they only had one good lineman who was Chad <laughs> Struther. There's a bunch of clips in my article in which it's like I'm gushing about what a good job Struther is doing. In the meantime, the quarterback is getting sacked or throwing a pick or, <laughs> you know, or there's a holding flag on somebody else or, you know, it's just like, I don't know it sort of feels like ironic um, in like a, in a performative way that I'm talking about what a great play it is. Meanwhile, a total disaster is happening, but it's like, yeah, but if you just watch Struther, you know, which is what you're supposed to be doing. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, they're all good. They're all good examples. Well, uh, yeah. Cause I, I mean, I really, that is what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, um, I guess we, uh, I guess I don't get, um, uh, very much opportunity to look at just offensive linemen. Yeah. And so uh, it was a lot of fun watching that. It was a lot of fun watching him manhandle defenders. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, he's big. He's a big dude. And uh, he moves well for his size. Because like I said, he's up to like 320 plus pounds, you know, at this point. And, like, and from 285 in high school. So it's like really put on the weight. Um, it, but moves well for it. He's well balanced. You know, his, 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 his frame is well balanced. I definitely see why he's a pickup, and I definitely see why he wanted to get out of town. It's just like, dude, this offense kind of sucks, and my teammates kind of suck. Like, I'm I'm putting words in his mouth. I'm sure he doesn't say that. Um, but like, that's definitely what the film was <laughs> indicating. Um, yeah. he actually there were, were actually a couple of really exciting skill players. They had a running back called Mitchell who was just like totally electric like all their big plays come from him just like making a dude miss and it's just like wow that guy is good um uh but anyway um and uh 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 oh there's another weird thing that i noticed which is there are very few screens in that offense and so one data point that i felt like i was missing well uh, that you know that that i well, like, I, I don't know how much Stein is going to want to do it, but just Oregon historically has had offensive linemen who run downfield on screen passes. And like, I don't know how good Struther is going to be at that because like EC just wasn't running that type of play. I think he'd be good because there'd be, there were a lot of quarterback draw plays in this offense. And like, he goes and does that, you know, but it's not quite the same thing. Um, uh, as, as screenplays, you know, like tunnel screens. Um, cause there's sort of a coordinated effort, you know, for that. Um, uh, but like, I don't know, overall, I think if, if everybody is healthy and Oregon has, um, you know, if everybody's healthy and Oregon has five guys to choose from at guard, um, cause I'm assuming that powers Johnson is just their dedicated center. Um, and, and the, and so exempting him from this list, the five guys that Oregon would then have to choose from assuming that everybody is healthy are Marcus Harper, the returner who had like 400 snaps last year, uh, playing guard. who's like a quasi starter for them because the four man rotation that they were doing, um, junior Angelau, the transfer from Texas, I already mentioned, um, Steven Jones, who's been playing for Oregon for a long time. Uh, he sort of came in as a tackle, um, but they've been playing him at guard for a long time. Uh, he had like 200 snaps last year as a guard, but he was like in the rotation. Um, his grades were the poorest uh, last year. I sort of feel like he's playing out of position. Um, but uh, um, And uh, uh, Struther. And then um, Dave Uly, who was the four-star redshirt freshman, um, he he was in the 2022 class. He redshirted last year, although he did get some garbage time play. And we saw him in the spring game, and he looked okay. Um, so those five guys, uh, again, I'll, I'll repeat, it's Harper and uh, Jones 
and Yuli, who are the returners in that order of level of experience, and Angelau and Struther, who are the transfers from Texas and East Carolina, respectively. Um, I would like to see, assuming that everybody is healthy, I would like to see Harper and Angelau be the starters at left guard and right guard, respectively. And I would like to see Struther and Jones be the two primary backups at left guard and right guard, respectively, um, with Yuli as the, you know, the last backup. Um, uh, you know, that's sort of the way that I see it. I, I in terms of the transfer pecking order, I think that uh, uh, Anglau, assuming he's healthy, is probably a bit ahead of Struther. I, I like his technical development a bit uh, more than I like uh, Struthers. Um, I do think that Struther is ahead of Jones, like substantially ahead of Jones. Um um, but, uh, but I, but I think that Struther is behind Angelau and behind Harper in terms of their development Harper, because I just think that Harper has been playing in Oregon's offense. And I think that Oregon's offense is just better than, uh, than the one that Struther is used to. So, uh, you know, that's how I see the pecking order. I, I see him as like the third best guard that Oregon has. Um, but he's may he conceivably is the healthiest guard that Oregon has. And so better read this article because he might be the best they've got. Yeah. Now, is this the, our first season where we've had, um, uh, anything approaching significant, uh, transfer portal action into the offensive line? Uh, from FBS level, uh, yes, that's true. Um, I mean, Oregon has had JUCOs for a while. You know, TJ Bass was a JUCO. Uh, Malasala Umvailulu was a JUCO. Um, um, uh, and this year, you know, uh, Silva uh, is a JUCO. Um, and I and I think that uh, Silva is going to be, you know, a real contender. In fact he may beat out Cornelius, the, um, the Rhode Island transfer for tackle. In fact, in the spring game, he was playing with the, 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 the offense, the Bo Nix, Troy Franklin uh, offense with the guys who I think were sort of the, the start. So it's like, that was really interesting that he was the one with, I think that was the green. And I think the yellow was the, uh, the, uh, Ty Thompson offense. I'm, I may have that backwards, but anyway, um, so that was really interesting. Yeah. I really think that silver Cornelius is a serious fight for starting right tackle. Um, um, but, uh, and then Struther was, uh, wasn't uh, available for the spring game yet. That's why I'm doing this article now. Um, but yeah, Harper and Angelau were both injured. Um, and we don't just don't know what their status is, which is, I think, what prompted going and getting Struther. And and frankly, you know, if Struther were their first choice, he would have been their first choice, you know. Um, so like they're the you know i don't think i'm saying anything crazy to say that like you know i think he's behind harper and angelau um but yeah to your point yes this is you know it's a lot of, of transfer based guys although i think like i said you know struther i think they just took struther because of the injuries and i think yep. if if harp if both harper and angelau weren't injured they probably wouldn't have gotten struther not that i'm saying that struther is not like oregon caliber and for shame for shame for having gotten him no not at all that's not it uh in the slightest but um uh but i just think that you know third in the order is about where he falls assuming everybody's healthy but yeah sure. um you know, Anglau, Struther, and Cornelius, three guys um, being in the mix um, as transfers. Yeah, that is a novel situation for Oregon. Um, uh, I don't think they're going to start more than two um, because I, I really find it doubtful. Because first of all, um, you know, Cornelius is a tackle, whereas Struther and um, and and Angelauer guards so you know it uh it's it's highly unlikely they're going to play all three because that would mean that like well that would mean that, that harper is still hurt i suppose you know i, I guess it's a possibility um but it would it would mean that a cornelius be, beats out silva which like you know i at this point i i say that's a coin flip and b it means that uh, uh harper is still injured um and uh, or, or, and that, 
and or uh, that the, they get beat by both uh, uh, the, the the two transfers in all of which like you're now, you know, that, that requires so many things happening. Uh, I think that what's probably going to happen is that it's going to be one of the transfers uh, at guard and then 50 50 shot. And the other one is Harper, uh, who's the starter. Um, and then 50-50 shot between Silva or Cornelius at right tackle. And so you're talking about 1.5, like odds on 1.5 starter as a transfer, which is like, that's really not, that's really not triggering my, like, my freak out about transfer <laughs> offensive line. If they got up to three, I mean, if it were, if it were Angelou, Struther, and Cornelius across the line, like I, then I might start freaking out. And that's a possibility. Uh, I mean, I'd be, yeah. Now, I think all three of those are, are very good. Like, you know, frankly, if those are the three, I think those three are better than a lot of other, like, no, literally all other Pac-12 teams that would be starting three Pac-12 or transfer offensive linemen. It's just, I don't like three. I, I really don't. Like, the data from 2018 to 2022 is pretty solid that, like, three portal-based offensive linemen is no good. Um, I, 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 I hope it doesn't come to that. I hope, I hope people get healthy. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. But in a in a vacuum, just talking about Nishad Strother, the guy whose film project I just completed. Um, no, I think he's very good, and I think he'd be very good backup uh, uh, to have. I don't think that you know Oregon. I mean, given that Oregon was using a four man rotation that included um, a walk on and uh, a guy playing out of position, Stephen Jones, um, last year, uh, and they were still like a Joe. They should have won the Joe Moore Award. Like they had a seven. 72% rushing efficiency. Like it was an incredible offensive line. Like, nah, you know, I, I ain't really worried. Uh, and Nishad Struther would have fit right in, um, you know, with that line. So, yeah. All right. All right. I think that's going to do it for us this week. Uh, we'll wrap it up there. You got any parting words of wisdom for us, Badwater? Uh, my only parting words of wisdom would be to um, read the Struther article. Boy, that, that was good stuff. I, I enjoyed it from beginning to end. So, yeah, you you deserve to be kind to yourself and read the article. Uh, well, I, I do enjoy <laughs> I do enjoy the film review. I do enjoy like offensive line technique. And hey, it's the summer. You know, you you're whining about it. Like there's no sports in the summer, but it just gives you an, an opportunity. When else are you going to have the opportunity to really nerd out about offensive line technique? It's the most exactly. important position that no one pays attention to. But this is an opportunity to do it. And uh, you know. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry that there's no uh, shade for you to hang out in, uh, but it does mean <laughs> that it, it doesn't really rain that much in July, but yep. it never rains on this podcast. <laughs>